Thanks, Olivia. Well, hey guys, my name's Ben. Um, so good to be here this morning. And, and what a privilege it is to open up the end of the book of Revelation. Uh, there's a lot of goodness to get into this morning. Uh, as Andrew said, one of the things we're going to do after the sermon, we're going to reflect in song, and then we're going to have a chance to reflect together on how God's um, spoken to us through his word in Revelation, what we've learned, what we've been encouraged by, how he's shaped and grown us. And so just be thinking as you go, as, as we're listening to this, as you reflect back on the last 15 weeks, what has God taught you? What's he shown you about himself through this book? Uh, one of my big hopes and goals and dreams for the book of Revelation, for us as a church, is that we would have come into this book, no matter how familiar you are with the Bible, coming away more confident to read this book. More confident that the Word of God is at work, it's living and active, and it shapes us through His Spirit. And so I'm going to pray that He would do that again for us this morning. Father God, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you for the goodness of the picture of heaven that we just had read out. And as we get stuck into that, we pray that you might help us to see you more clearly. We might, you might help us to uh, look forward and long for heaven. You might give us a bigger vision of who you are and what awaits us as if we have our trust in King Jesus. Uh, do that work in us this morning by your spirit. Amen. So we're going to be thinking about heaven today or the new creation. And I think there are lots of different views of heaven. Uh, you know, the average person in our society might not even think there is a heaven. That's one view that, you know, you just kind of, after you die, that's it. That's the end of your existence. Uh, but lots of people do think there's a heaven, and there's a lot of different views. Different religions have different kind of views on what heaven looks like. Uh, you know, you think about the kind of classic one that you get in the newspapers whenever they want to picture anything of heaven. It's angels kind of floating around on clouds, like playing harps. Uh, <laughs> that's not at all the picture that we see here today. But I think a lot of people that kind of uh, don't, haven't read the Bible that much tend to think of heaven as just kind of having all the best stuff that this world has to offer and none of the worst stuff. You know, like uh, it's got, for, you might be for some of the stuff that I love, like sunny weather, craft beer, salted caramel, um, you know, perfect relations, like just the stuff that you love, is, it's all going to be there. And, and all the worst stuff won't be there, crime, wars, anxiety, traffic jams, stubbed toes. Like from the, the big to the small, we kind of have this view of heaven where it's going to be our kind of personal paradise. And what will make it great will be that all the stuff that I want will be there and none of the stuff I don't want will be there. Now, immediately we're starting to run into problems because what if I like something and someone else hates it? Like... <laughs> Uh, if you know, my wife hates salted caramel, is that going to be in heaven? Because I love it. I'd love the salted caramel fountain. She would hate that. that... <laughs> the problem is, we've got such a small view of heaven. If we just think it's the good stuff from this world and not the bad stuff. We, we need bigger categories to help us understand what heaven's actually going to be like. See, one author reflecting on our lack of the, our ability to understand heaven said it was a bit like giving school kids who are learning to read a, a beautiful piece of poetry. They're so caught up in just understanding the letters and trying to read the words that they don't even grasp the, the beauty of the words that are in front of them. And so my goal today is to give us a clearer picture of heaven. And what makes it so good in order that we might live faithful lives to Jesus, centering on him and centering our hope on what is to come. 
So that's where we're going to go. So the first point in your outlines is actually not in your outlines, but the first point is made new. Uh, so you can write that down if you're taking notes. <laughs> and the first thing we see about heaven is that it's all things made new. We're going to work through the passage together. So open up with me to chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. See, in John's vision, he sees this new heaven and new earth come down. Because remember back in chapter 20, verse 11, earth and heaven have fled from God. Uh, The picture in the Bible is that the earth as we currently know it is going to kind of be wrapped up like an old piece of clothing and, and we'll have a new heaven. It doesn't mean that there's no continuity between this creation and the new creation, the new heaven and earth. Um, but, but it's not going to be just this world continued on. It's a new heaven and earth come down. And, and the description you get there is that there's going to be no more sea. And that's a real bummer if you're into surfing uh, or you like going to the beach. And No, I... Uh, I'm going to give you guys uh, my view on the whole chapters of 21-22. I don't think we're supposed to read this physically, literally. I don't think this is telling us that there's not going to be, geographically speaking, any oceans or seas in heaven. See, see, Revelation, it's apocalyptic. It's using symbolic pictures to convey spiritual truths. We've seen that as we've gone throughout the book of Revelation, haven't we? It's not designed to be simply read on the physical, literal level. There's more symbolism there. See, in the Bible, the sea is a place of chaos and evil. Here's Isaiah 57, verse 20. But the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, for it cannot be still, and its water churns up mire and muck. See, in the Bible, the sea represents evil and chaos. And we've seen that as we've gone through Revelation as a book, haven't we? So you remember, if you remember back with me to chapter 12, when the dragon Satan has been cast down from heaven and he's come to wage war against God's people, and what's he doing? He's standing on the shore of the sea. And the two beasts in chapter 13 come out of the sea and cause chaos and havoc and seek to achieve evil in the world. See, the sea, we saw it with Babylon in chapter 17 and 18, is the place where Babylon, the, a world against Jesus, profits from evil and, and, and trade and oppression. It's all in the sea. See, I think what this is saying, it's describing a reality of the new creation for us. No more threat of evil. No more Satan to attack. No more death in the new creation. None of the chaos or the murkiness that exists for us today will be there. No more fear, no more looking over your shoulder in worry, no more drama, but peace. Can you imagine that new creation world and how good it will be? No more guessing other people's motives and misunderstanding each other. No more chaos and confusion. On a a global level, no more chaos and, and war and oppression and greed. On a relational level, can you imagine your workplace with no more drama? Like, how good would that be? Like, in my home, I have three kids under five, and let me tell you, our bedtime routine at the moment, if I was going to use one word to describe it, it would be chaos. <laughs> the, the thing about chaos is it's emotionally and mentally draining, and it, and it sucks from us. It takes 
from us. But in heaven, in the new creation, the picture here is of a, a perfect world with no more chaos, no more evil. That's why he gives us this picture of the sea. And look at how the vision continues in verse 3. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. See, it's not just the new creation world that's made new. It's us who's been made new. It's humanity. Death will be no more. Grief and crying and pain will be no more in heaven. Now, I know there's not a person in this room today that hasn't been affected by these things, by pain, by grief, by death. That's a reality that we all live with in this world. But the, the great hope of the new creation is that there those things will be no more. Humanity will be made new. There'll be no regrets. There'll be nothing to mourn, no more tears. See, heaven is a real physical place, and it's been made new. And, and, and we have these real physical bodies which have been made new. And, and, and no sin, I, I long for that. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, don't you long for that? The, the reality that um, no more shame, no more hurting others, no more regrets, no more acting in ways that you didn't want to. Um, trusting Jesus, but still in this world, having sin and brokenness in the world and, and living out the reality of that. This week, I've been reminded afresh of how good heaven will be because we'll be perfected. There'll be no more sin there for us because we've been made new. But here's the kicker. It's not just new creation and new humanity. Did you see what was at the center of heaven? What makes it so special? It's God with us. See, verse 3, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. Michael Allen put it in his book, Grounded in Heaven. This is a great book on heaven if you want to go and read something more. Uh, it quotes going to come from the screen. He said this, God is not only the instrument and guarantor of our hope, but the personal center and substance of our hope. The kingdom of God is defined first and foremost by the presence of the king. Do you see what he's saying? It's not just that God has done the work, Jesus dying in our place for our sin, redeeming us so that we can go and spend eternity with God in heaven. He hasn't just done the work, but he is the center of that hope. See, the center of what makes heaven so good is that it's with God. It's seeing him face to face. Now, I don't know how long you've been a Christian for. You might be here just exploring these things for the first time. But for those of us who do know Jesus, um, there's so much good that we can experience here in this world. That he's with us through the ups and downs, through the, in the lows, in the valleys, in the highs. Uh, he's with us. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've seen God at work in you by his spirit to grow you, to shape you, to change you. Uh, you've seen his character come through more and more deeply. You've seen his love, his mercy. But all of what we experience now Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, is like experiencing it by seeing it through a dimly lit mirror. You know one of those like uh, dodgy mirrors that you might see in like a pub bathroom, it's all scratched up and you can, you can barely see your own reflection. See, that's now, 
Even as good as what we experience now of God is, it's like a dimly lit mirror. But then, in the future, in the new creation, in heaven, we will see him face to face. We will experience the vibrancy and and glory of God in a totally new way. If you love Jesus and you love God the Father and you love the Spirit and you love spending time with him now, that's going to be even better in the new creation. It will be an endless well of of joy and opportunity and relationship, joining in with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit for eternity. See, this is what we were made for. It's, it's what we were designed for, to know and love the God of the universe. See, it's kind of like, I was trying to picture this, it's kind of like, you know, like high school dancers, we have some, some of the kids are like getting and dancing in the middle and they're really enjoying it, but others will just kind of stand on the wall and they're a bit too cool and they're just kind of like bopping along a little bit. Like they're experiencing it, uh, just on the very edge. Uh, the, the way that I thought about this is, um, I think when we get to heaven, it'll be like joining in the dance. Like we're experiencing it in a sense here with relationship with God now, but in the new creation, it's going to be a more fullness and more vibrancy to relationship with God. See, even here, we do have intimate relationship with God, don't we? If, if our trust is in Jesus, if he's saved us, we're united to him. He's died, we've died with him. He's been risen and we've been risen with him. And we have his spirit in us and we can call God Father and speak to him. But all of that compared to the new creation is kind of like a long distance phone call. We have the relationship, it's good, but there is something much better that awaits us if our hope is in Jesus, if we're God's. See, the the truth that we get here is that the one who rules over galaxies and all of creation is the one who will personally wipe away our tears, who will be with us and love us and will have that relationship forever. As we read this, I think this does two things for me. It gives me such comfort and hope. See, what's going to help you trust Jesus now in the midst of the brokenness of life, in the midst of the the pain and suffering that exists in our world today. I think it's this. It's this vision of the new creation, this eternity that we're going to have with Jesus. Made new, new creation. Us made new, humanity, but centered on, on God. See, the pattern of our world currently is life to death. You're born, you're vibrant, you have heaps of energy and you you grow and young kids, they get around, they move. But as we saw in the kids' talk, you get old. Your body starts to break down, it starts to ache, things go wrong. Uh, One of my favourite authors, Terry Pratchett, he said, inside every old person is a young person wondering what happened. It happens to all of us. We, We go through this natural life, which is this pattern of life to death. The effects of the of sin, of the curse, of the broken world that we live in affect us all. There's no one that escapes it. It affects us physically and mentally, emotionally and spiritually. But the good news that we see here is, is that with the death and resurrection of Jesus, with the promise of the new creation, that old order of life leading to death has been reversed. Because of Jesus' resurrection and the future hope that we have, we're moving from death to life. 
It's been reversed. We're moving from bodies that are breaking down now to bodies that will exist forever in perfect relationship with God. From a world which is now full of sin and brokenness and death to an eternity of life, of perfection with God. From, from pain here and now to peace. See, the picture of the new creation gives us hope because the cycle has been reversed. We're not moving from life to death. We're moving from death to life now. Why do we have this picture? To remind us to hold fast to Jesus in the midst of the brokenness of this world. He's making all things new. And it's going to center on relationship and life with God for eternity. It's the life we were made to live. And it's the life that the Bible promises from start to finish. So this is the second point, if you're taking notes. Promises fulfilled. See, the, th- the second thing that this passage shows us about the new creation, about heaven, is that heaven, the new creation, is where all of God's promises are fulfilled. If I was to summarize the story of the Bible in kind of one sentence, I'd say it's something like God creates a perfect world and humans in their sinfulness rebel against God and are left in brokenness, and yet God rescues them to, for himself through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, so that they might, so that we might enjoy perfect relationship with God and the blessing of life with him for eternity. Now that was a long sentence, but <laughs> creation, redemption, eternity. That's the, that's the story of the Bible. And, and, and these verses in 21 verses 9 to 22 verse 5, they, they give us these different pictures that if we have eyes to see, the Old Testament roots particularly, that they'll show us that Jesus is fulfilling and guaranteeing all of God's promises throughout the Bible's story. See, we're going to look at a couple just just briefly. The first promise that we see here is the promise of presence. See, remember Adam and Eve in the garden walking with God and the tragedy of their sin and rebellion against him, which was that they would be kicked out of the garden. They would no longer have the same intimacy and relationship and presence of God. But yet God comes to his people time and time again and says, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, I'll walk with you, I'll be with you. And that's the whole point of the Old Testament sacrificial system and the temple system. It was a way for a holy God to dwell with the people who were rebellious and sinful. It was a way for God to be with them. And the temple... It had this inner bit. You might have looked at this if you are in a connect group and you did this this week. The temple had this inner bit. So um, the Israelites could have to be kind of come and worship in the outer of the temple, but only the special few, the priests, and only one could go in once a year into that middle inner bit of the temple. It was called the Holy of Holies. And that was where God's presence was in the Old Testament. And and come and look at Revelation 21 with me. Pick it up with me in verse 11. We get this long description. We're going to go go through it pretty quickly. But we see all these different things. We see it's got precious jasper and stones in verse 11. It's this splendid kind of glorious city. In verse 12, we see it's got 12 gates. uh, And and, and they're representing the Old, Old Testament people of God. It says they're Israel's sons. And then we see it's got 12 foundations for the walls, representing the New Testament people of God. It's the 12 apostles that brought the hope of the gospel to more than just Israel, but to the whole world, to the Gentiles. And so this city, this new Jerusalem, represents 
all of God's people, Jews and Gentiles. And then in, in verse 15 to 17, uh, you get this section where an angel comes and measures the city. And we see that it's a perfect cube in length and width and height. It's, what is it, um, 12,000 stadia, which is 2,000 kilometers, or a bit over 2,000 kilometers. So it's this like gold cube with walls and, and precious stones. But here's the thing. Like I've already said, I don't think this is supposed to be a physical, literal description. I actually think heaven's going to look something similar to this earth and, and the kind of realities of this earth, but made new. In, in the same way that a sea turns into a tree, there'll be something recognisable of this earth, but in heaven will be far more glorious. I, I think what this image is designed to do is show us that this is, this is a representation of the Holy of Holies, the inner bit of God's temple. See, in all the designs that God gave Israel of the temple, this inner bit was supposed to be a perfect cube. The instructions that he gave to Moses about the tabernacle when it was just a tent, and the instructions that he gave to David um, to build the temple when that, was, that came in. See, this is, see what Solomon, David's son, builds in 1 Kings, verse, 1 Kings 6 verse 2? It says, The interior of the sanctuary was 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 30 feet high. He overlaid it with pure gold. See, it's the same dimensions. It's this kind of cube. It's, what, what we're seeing here is that it's, this is the Holy of Holies, but far bigger than anything else, far more encompassing than any other kind of uh, image of the temple, that those temples were just kind of foreshadowing and pointing forwards to this new creation city. See, this, what, what it's showing us is, what's the point of the measurements? It's to show us that this new city is the temple. It's a temple city. And, and God dwells not just for a select few that can access him, but for everyone in the new creation. They all have access to God. There is no special temple bit anymore in the new creation. See, that's exactly the point that we see in verse 22. See, there, I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates it, and the Lamb is the lamp. See, the, the glory of the new creation city temple is that God is there with us. That's God's promise. His, his creation plan was always to be with his people. God and the Lamb are there. And they, and they act in a, in a way that they're shining like the sun. Again, I don't think this is literal. There might, I, I don't know if there's going to be a, a sun in heaven, but the point here is to show us the glory and splendor of life with God. That's what it's doing. We're, we're invited into the presence of God just like he promised. And the same is true for the restoration of creation. See, pick it up with me in chapter 22, verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> He showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. 
Do you see, if you've got eyes to see here, there's so many throwbacks to the Garden of Eden, the, the river of the water of life, the, the tree of life, the presence of God, worshipping him. This is a throwback to Eden, but it's even better. It's expanding, once again, our picture of the new creation. It's the city, temple, garden of God. That's this new creation imagery. And it's God's promise was always... To, to fulfill and bring creation to this point. See, one of the clearest places we see this is in Isaiah 65. God promises this in verse 17. He says, For I will create new heavens and a new earth, and past events will not be remembered or come to mind. That's exactly what we're seeing here in Revelation 21 and 22, isn't it? This promise of God fulfilled New creation, no more grief or pain. The events of old won't come to mind. It's life with God. And it's verse 3, it's life with the curse overturned. God and the Lamb are there on the throne and there's no more sin or rebellion which have led to the cursed world. It's this, this language, isn't it, of intimacy and worship. It's of restoration and healing. Have you noticed as we've gone through a few times we've seen uh, it's, it's for healing of the nations, or it's the, in, in verse, where are we? It's the peoples of God in verse 21, verse 3. He will live with them, they will be his peoples. See, all the best of our culture, all the best of this world, I, I take it there's, there's going to be even more glory for God by bringing this multitude of nations and, and cultures and peoples together in eternity to worship and praise him to live in this new creation, celebrating the unity that we now exist in with God. That's what we see, that the fulfillment of God's promise to restore all of creation, all of our cultures. See, heaven is the fulfillment of God's creation. It's everything that this creation was meant to be before it was mucked up by sin and brokenness. And that's God's plan from the start, to live with his people for eternity ruling over them that they might experience the blessing and joy of being with God forever. It's the, the truth that Israel is reminded of as they're just about to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy 31. See, see it's going to come on the screen. Moses reminds Joshua of this truth. The Lord is the one who will go before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. See, in the context there, uh, Israel had the promised land and, and they were going into it and, and, and God was reminded that he was going to be there with them, he was going to rule with them. But that land was just pointing forward to this one. That kingdom was just pointing forward to this one, a better land, a better kingdom. That one was just a shadow that would be in time, Israel would leave the land. But this one is for eternity. It's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. See, why does Revelation use all of this Old Testament imagery? I've only scratched the surface here in this passage. Ezekiel 47 and Isaiah 65 come up time and time again. Why? Why does he do this? Why do we have that recorded with these allusions to the Old Testament? Because God wants us to know that he keeps his promises. That's why we have this vision for us. And do you know what that means? It means that God can be trusted. See, heaven is this eternal demonstration that the God of the universe keeps his word, that he's trustworthy, that he's faithful and loving and good. Isn't that exactly what we need to hear in a world of pain, in a world of poverty, of pandemics, of, of war, of chaos and evil all around us? 
in, in a world that has death in it, the great equalizer. Isn't it so good to be reminded from this passage that God keeps his promises? And so I want to encourage you this morning, cling to God. No matter what life throws at you, no matter what happens, cling to God that he is faithful to keep his promises. He gives us this picture so that we'll remain faithful to him, trusting him, persevering, fighting sin. Don't get distracted. Don't get distracted by the things of this world. We need a bigger picture of heaven and the reality to shape our lives. See, that's what awaits us. That's why we have this image. He's coming back soon, but we have this image now to help us stay faithful to him. See, it's soon, but for now, we live life in the middle. That's the third point, life in the middle. I'm not sure for you, but as we've kind of gone through today and seen this beautiful picture of heaven, it sounds pretty good, right? It sounds pretty good. But does it leave you with questions now? God, why did you allow that suffering or that war to happen? Or why is my life unfolding in the way that it is? Or what does the future look for, look like for me? Or, you know, what are you doing in the world, God? See, we get this vision right at the end of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, to show us that at the end, Jesus wins. At the end, God's going to make everything right. There's going to be redemption for those who trust Jesus. There'll be no more pain or tears or death. But our problem is that we're still in the middle of the story. We live in the middle. We don't live at the end. That's to come. See, not everything that God has promised has come true yet. Some of it has. Jesus has died and risen from the dead and and we have new life in him and his spirit in us, but so much of it is still to come true. We're yet to be raised on the last day. Evil is yet to be finally judged and, and done away with. The new creation promises are all ahead. And we live in the middle. We live in this space where God has acted in the world. Jesus' death and resurrection has triggered this unstoppable process that will culminate in this glorious picture that we've seen today of all things made new, God with his people. But yet, here we live in the middle. We find ourselves waiting, longing, looking forward with hope, living in the, in the now but not yet promises of God which have started in Jesus but are still to be fulfilled in the new creation. And the key to living life well in the middle is knowing the end. Knowing that Jesus wins, that he's coming back. So that's exactly how Revelation closes. Pick it up with me in chapter 22, verse 7. He says, Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. See, Jesus is saying two things here. He's saying that first, he's coming soon. That this moment in history that we live in today, that started at the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is the final moment of world history. It's the final scene right before the credits are due. It's the final kind of pages of this book that you're reading. Time is running out. Now is the time to listen to Jesus. And and that's the second thing. He's calling us to listen to him, to keep the words of the prophecy. See, see, the call of the book of Revelation is to hear, this, hear these prophecy, hear these words of Jesus, and keep them. To live our lives 
based on the realities that this book has shown us throughout the last 15 weeks. The realities of heaven and hell, of Jesus the Lamb who was slain and conquered sin and death for us, that we might have eternity with him. The reality of the end of these pictures of judgment that we've seen throughout the book. And now this picture of God's new creation. We're to live in light of the end, to listen to Jesus and keep his words. See, if if you're here this morning and, and you just come along and you're new to church, you're exploring these things, Revelation gives you a message. It's a message that time is running out, but there is an invitation for you. See, come across to verse 17 with me. You get this picture of, of, of um, invitation. It says in verse 17, both the spirit and the bride say, come. Remember, the bride is the church of God. The people of God. Let anyone who hears say, Come, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. See, this is an offer of salvation to come and um, take the water of life from God, but it won't last forever. It requires you to make a response. Uh, You need to actually do something about it, to, to take the thing, the offer of life that Jesus is giving to you. Jesus. Death in your place has secured your salvation. If you will turn, repent of your sin and put your trust in him, come to Jesus. That's the message revelation. If you're here today and you don't yet have your trust in him, come to him. He's inviting you today to do that. Do that with Auckland EV. Come and experience what God has to offer for you. Sign up and explore these things through explaining Christianity. Or fill out a Connect card and say you're keen to talk with someone about Jesus and we'll meet up for a coffee. We'll chat with you more about this. If you came with a friend, ask them today, hey, what does it mean to put your trust in Jesus? Don't let another day pass without deciding to do something about this, without taking Jesus up on his offer. But if you're here and you do trust Jesus and you've been trusting him with your life, I think this passage, this ending, this call to hear and keep the words of God, it's a call for what I'm going to call holy obedience. It's to stand firm trusting Jesus, but to live a life where you listen to him, where you keep his words, where you remain faithful to him. It's not to, you don't do those things to secure your salvation. You are safe with Jesus. Your name is in the book of life, we've seen. But it's a response to the salvation that has been won for us. See, the message of Revelation is that Jesus isn't just the Savior. He's the King. He's the one who we're to listen to, whose words we're to treasure, who, who we're to center our whole lives on. Trusting him while we wait for this glorious future of the new creation. I've been doing a parenting course recently uh, with Gottman. It's on emotion coaching, and it's all about helping kids like learn to manage their emotions, uh, empathy, emotional regulation, those kind of things. Um, I, I'm learning heaps just doing the course for myself. But they talk about this the classic test where you know you put a marshmallow out, and you say, "Hey, if you wait three minutes, you can have three marshmallows. But if not, you just get the one." And and it turns out the kids who can emotionally regulate, have self control, and wait. They tend to do really well in life. EQ is actually a much better indicator of success in life than IQ, they found out from the research. Um, essentially, it's, the, it's the, the book of Revelation is a little bit like that. It, it's, it's a call from God to you as a Christian to live life now, knowing that there is something much better to come. 
Something much better to live for, to center your life on. A call to trust and hope in light of the end. So I want to ask you this morning, are you, are you prepared to delay gratification? Are you, pre- are you prepared to delay some of the pleasures of this world, which, which are good, for the sake of eternity? Are you prepared to say no to some of the things of this world in order to say yes to Jesus? What's that going to look like for you this week? as you think through that? Where is it in your life that you might need to say no to something that you've been saying yes to and actually come back and and be faithful to Jesus once more? To live a life of holy obedience to the one who has saved you and called you to keep his words. Where do you need to persevere in trust? Remembering that this world is not all that there is. There is a new creation hope waiting for you. See, Revelation gives us this book Uh, this chapter in chapter 20 and 21 and 22 to remind us to persevere, to remind us that there is something much better in our future. See, look how the book ends in verse 20. He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Revelation gives us this picture of life between the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus and the throne, his ultimate return and we'll be with him for eternity. And he invites us now to trust him and stay faithful in the middle, in the middle of the story because we know the end. We know that Jesus wins and that we'll have life with him for eternity. See, that's the kind of church that we want to be here at Auckland EV. We want to be a church that lives for Jesus because we know the end. We know that he's won the victory, that he's died for us, and that the new creation awaits. We want to be a church that offers the hope of the gospel to a thirsty world. That in Jesus there really is life and joy and freedom on offer, now and for eternity. We want to be a church, don't we, that hears the words of Jesus and encourages each other to keep them. To live as disciples of Jesus, to have conversations with each other about how we're finding that hard and encourage each other and pray for each other and be vulnerable with each other. We want to be a church that centers everything we do on giving God the glory that he so deserves. Yeah, let's pray that we might be that kind of church, faithful to Jesus as we live in light of the end. Let's pray. Father God, We're so thankful for this picture that we've seen of the new creation. We're thankful that the world is going to be made new. We're thankful that we will be made new. No more sin or brokenness or pain or grief or tears. We long for that day. We're so thankful that we're going to center everything that we do on you for eternity. There is no greater joy than to know and have relationship with you. We pray now as we live life in the middle, that you would help us to trust you. Help us to look forward with hope. Help us to proclaim the hope of the gospel to a thirsty world. Thank you that you are coming soon and you have guaranteed that. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful, and if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.